Hey everyone, this is Giordano from the Juice Media. Welcome back to the Juice Media Podcast, a companion to the Honest Government Ad series. This episode of the podcast is recorded on Wurundjeri land and it is the companion to our latest Honest Government Ad about the floods. Hello, I'm from the Australian Government. We know these devastating floods have been hard for you, but they've been hard for us too. They've happened on the eve of an election. And since we've abandoned, betrayed, burned, drowned or pissed off just about every living thing on this continent, we can't even resort to handshakes, cosplay and photo ops anymore. Top Gun. This Honest Government ad acts as a segue, unfortunately, to the last one we made in 2020 about the fires, which was the last major climate disaster to hit Australia. In so many ways, the situation has not changed. This government still doesn't listen to the experts or heed warnings. It still fails to prepare. And then when the shit hits the fan, it goes missing in action and looks for others to blame. The one thing that has changed, thankfully, is that this disaster has happened just before the next federal election, which means the nation will get to decide in the next few weeks whether this is the government we want to have in charge as we head deeper into the climate crisis. In this podcast, we'll be talking about all that, but I also want to use this time to hear from the communities that were hit by the floods to get a sense of the loss and grief, as well as the stories of bravery and heroism, which ensured hundreds of lives were saved. Which is why I'm stoked to have as my guest today, a local resident from Lismore, the epicenter of the floods, Sue Higginson. Sue is a farmer, a mother and grandmother, an activist, and also a kick-ass public interest environmental lawyer. As the former principal solicitor of the Environmental Defender's Office, Australia's leading environmental law institution, Sue has led some of the highest profile environmental litigation in the country, taking on mining giants Adani, Whitehaven, BHP, Rio Tinto in the courts and winning. I hope you enjoy our chat and I'll catch you on the other side. Welcome to the Juice Media Podcast, Sue Higginson. It's really great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Look, for those who might not know you, um, perhaps you could briefly introduce yourself um, where you live, your connection to the areas affected by the floods and your professional work? Yeah, thanks. So I'm a public interest environmental lawyer and I've been working in that field for a couple of decades now. I'm the former CEO and principal solicitor of the Environmental Defenders Office in New South Wales, which is one of our leading public environmental law institutions. I'm a Lismore local. I've been here all my adult life while I got here when I was a teenager. It's where I've had my children and where my grandchildren have now um, been born. And here is where I farm with my partner. So we are farmers as well. Um, We are dry land rice farmers. Um, So we've engaged in this kind of farming because We have tried to embrace innovative, modern ways of farming that are sustainable and um, enhance the environment and work with the environment. Um, So, yeah, that's um, who I am and what I do. Well, it's really great to have you here because, um, as you know, our latest Honest Government ad spoke about the floods, the tragic floods that have hit your area. And, um, you know, we've spoken to climate scientists in our recent podcasts, but I really wanted to speak with someone from the area who can, you know, talk about the actual experience um, on the ground. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously, obviously the video that we've made focuses on on the government's abject failure to prepare and respond to, the, to this disaster. And I want to talk with you about that too. But first, uh, before we get onto the shit fuckery, uh, I think it's important to acknowledge and give priority 
to the stories of bravery and heroism and the communities that have been hit by the floods, which have prevented this disaster from claiming so many more lives. Can you paint a picture for us of how the community there has responded to this disaster uh, so people listening can get a sense of what happened and how it unfolded? Yeah, look, I mean, really, it's been nothing short of absolutely heroic. We're really used to floods in Lismore and the Northern Rivers. Um, we're one of the wetter areas in the country. Um, this rain event built up with novel components to it. Um, the rain just kept pelting down and pelting down. We knew we were getting flood warnings. Um, and in fact, really, the day before on the Saturday, the flood warnings were pretty good. We were getting those. We went from moderate, uh, minor to moderate to major flood warnings. You've just got a picture if you're from Lismore or you come to Lismore. Everywhere you go, on every power pole or building, there's a little sign and it says the 74 flood. This is imprinted culturally in us of uh, the most the highest or, you know, the 54 flood was a little bit higher than that perhaps, but that's the marker. And I kid you not, that marker, you look in the sky and you see it above every above where you are. So we were preparing and everybody moved their stuff up, up to their roofs, up to their flood level, and everybody enacted their flood plans. We were, well, we were told to prepare for a flood that would go over our levee bank, over 10 metres. And so that's, that was the preparation work. But around about 10pm that Sunday night, a lot of the social media feeds and the conversations happening late were, guys, if you can move and you can evacuate, do it now. The SES had already given a bit of an evacuation warning to people in the lower areas. But as I say, we're used to floods. Floods in the lower areas mean the water comes over, the water comes up, uh, friends jump in tinnies, they go from veranda to veranda where people are sitting on their verandas who have been through floods. They're on their verandas with their chooks, their dogs, their kids, perhaps a goat, maybe a sheep. Um, it's the way floods are done. Friends check on friends in tinnies. They make sure they've got enough supplies for the few days until the flood goes down, that sort of thing. Um, it just became patently obvious by midnight that this was not that flood. This was not a flood that we've ever seen before. The prediction was the levee would break around 5 a.m. The levee broke much earlier than that. So by 5 a.m. as the sun rose, um, those people who would ordinarily be jumping in their tinnies to go and greet their friends were actually jumping in their tinnies, risking their lives um, and then going to save their friends from, and save their lives, save them from on top of their roofs, save them from inside their roofs. And we know being inside a roof is an incredibly dangerous thing to do, but people were in their roofs because they couldn't get onto their roofs and they had nowhere else to go. Um, and then then started the, the horror, the horror of the morning uh, um, and friends um, messaging friends who were in tinnies trying to say, you need to go to this person's house. Quick, can you try and get to this person's house? And then those friends risking their lives, um, reporting back, we can't get over there. The flood water is too fast this time. We can't go the normal routes we would go. Um, and, and the whole time just the fear of thinking the person I'm talking to right now could lose their life any moment now. It was the catastrophe just unfolded. 
But it didn't stop these people. These people were heroic. And, you know, let's remember at this point, um, there really was only two SES boats um, in the immediate vicinity. And at that point, the SES headquarters was actually at risk of flood as well. So you had the official responders um, in grave peril themselves with incredibly limited resources. So whilst that side of things were mobilising and organising, um, lives were being saved. There was one, one chap in South Lismore um, who literally was um, knew that the people he was getting from roofs and out of buildings, he had so many people to get out that he wouldn't be able to take them to the nearest land, safe land spot. He located the highest roof he could, thinking I've got these people will be safe for about another 40, 50 an hour on this roof. If I can get these 30 people onto that roof and then they by that time they'll be back up. So wow. the, the community response was absolutely not just heroic, it was so strategic and intelligent and tactfully correct that we so many lives were saved. Unfortunately, some lives were lost and it was for too many lives, um, but so many were saved. Uh, can I just say also for our international audience, uh, a lot of people tuning in from out of Australia, what a tinny is uh, if I if I because I'm not Australian myself, so I've just kind of put two and two together. But it's a tin, it's a small tin dinghy or a boat with a little motor on the back. Correct? Absolutely correct. And and look, what's really interesting picking up on the tinny is, um, so you have to remember that this is not just a tinny on a river or a tinny on a lake or a tinny out in the bay. This is a tinny out in raging floodwaters in some areas. And, of course, you don't know what's underneath the, the, the water. There might be a truck or a van or and there's power lines that you have to navigate around and all sorts of infrastructure. And, and, and in front of the tinny's eyes, buildings were moving from their foundations. Houses were picked up and moving, as were, um, you know, livestock. There were some places, of course, the tinnies couldn't go to and you needed the flat-bottomed boat, the SES rescue boats. So, um, again, we, we now know that really in any future event, there's a preferred type of boat for this response. It's so important um, to for people to to hear these stories because i think um especially with i mean one of the things that happened is that these floods happen at the same time as another catastrophe humanitarian catastrophe in ukraine and a lot of people's i mean so many people during this time were literally like oh, i can't take this you know even just being as as someone who is just seeing the news it's like oh my god there's too many things competing for my uh, uh terror and empathy and 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 in some ways i feel really um sorry that it happened at this time because i feel like even more there would have been even more attention dedicated to uh, the floods uh, what's the community response been nationally to the floods do you feel supported in lismore do residents they feel like the nation knows what's been happening um look it's 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 really hard to gauge that um you know being in the community certainly there has been um there has been a, a, an incredibly sympathetic and an empathetic response absolutely and we can see that 
Um, but we ourselves, you know, we understand what's happening outside of where we are. Um, that compounds the very problem for the trauma being experienced here. You know, the conversation has taken a whole new tone and narrative and the, the lyrics are all different now. Um, oh, at least we're not getting bombed and shelled. Hang on a minute, but I've lost everything as if I have been bombed and shelled, but I'm still alive. So the, the, we're, we're engaging with a whole new conversation about how we cope, how we respond. The community here is just absolutely traumatised. The, the, uh, the, the amount of displaced people, there are thousands and thousands of buildings that were once full of life and children and home and art and culture, it's just gone. And we're not sure, we're not sure how to respond. Um, you know, this is a, a, a catastrophic climate-induced um, event that has taken place. Um, we don't we don't really have the tools to properly respond to this. The community is doing a remarkable job, but uh, in so many ways, I, I feel like they're pine we're pioneering. It, it's very new territory. Um, and yeah, in some ways it's different to the fires. It, it, it's um, even though being here feels incredibly similar to that event. Uh, um, I mean, what do we do? Do we start measuring what? What disaster is worse than the other? How do we no, do right. this? I mean, so many, I mean, it feels like we're in an era now of overlapping, spiraling catastrophes, social, humanitarian, environmental. It, it, but it just struck me that when the fires took place in 2019, the world watched and everyone was, you know, the whole world was like, help Australia, send help from, from all over the place. And, and this time it's just, sorry, guys, but there's a shit show happening on this side of the world now. And that's just the new reality that we're dealing with is that it is going to become more and more um, overlapping. Now that this has happened, what do you recommend to other communities who might be going, shit, are we next? How do communities prepare for this level of climate destruction? Hmm. There's just no doubt that we haven't, we have not been doing the work we should be doing. We need a local, regional, state and national response in terms of the preparedness and being prepared. Preparedness has to come from the community experience but also fitted to the particular landscape that we're, that we're in. Um, so we're not going to be able to engineer our way out of climate change and we're not going to be able to engineer our way out of disasters and catastrophic extreme weather events. We're going to have to learn how to live with them and prepare ourselves and build the resilience within the landscape to cope and accommodate with them. So in our case, we need to be looking at how to slow the flood water, the waters down coming from the catchment and how to get communities out of the inundation area quickly. Um, and then what, what are the appropriate buildings and structures to have in there and what green infrastructure do we need to protect ourselves? Um, that's what we believe adaptation and being prepared would look like. Um, we, we're not being offered that right now, uh, quite the contrary. So that's been quite alarming for us. And I would advise any communities elsewhere, um, be really cognizant and aware of political um, announcements and solutions that actually won't provide the um, response that we really need. Well, Sue, that takes us into um, the role of government in all this. And, um, you know, let's talk about the mob that did not respond adequately to, to, to this catastrophe. 
um, what what was the expectation from state and government, um, and and how where were the failures that that are that are apparent in that response? So the immediate response is naturally you've got thousands of people who are displaced. So providing some form of shelter, protection and safety for those people um, was fundamental. Our immediate evacuation centre was unfortunately nothing short of grim. Um, there 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 was no dignity in those shelters at all. There was barely a place to rest your bones and lie down. There were not the facilities to rest on. There was really... The evacuation centre was completely unprepared for the scale of the damage, harm and the need. Um, So having a um, functioning evacuation centre or at least the capacity to pop up a functioning evacuation centre early is really important. We didn't have that. Our people did it so rough in the first few nights um, it's almost unforgivable and the trauma, the compounded trauma that people experienced um, in that centre is a story that will be will unfold in the coming weeks. It's already started to unfold. Um, suffice to say, uh, um, an emergency secondary evacuation centre w- was mobilised through community again. So, you know, even so, that's the immediate response. Being everybody, people have lost everything: their clothes, their toothbrush, like everything that it requires to be a a, a human being that can face the sunshine the next day. Um, So these sort of things are really important. But then going to the mid-stage or the second stage of still in the the rescue phase, um, people need to know that that they're going to be assisted in finding some short-term or temporary accommodation. That's been really difficult for an area, say, like Lismore. And, you know, let's face it, we know that the evidence is that uh, the more vulnerable, the poorer people in our communities and societies will be impacted by climate change more so than the wealthier. We know this. Why? Lismore is a classic example. Um, the South and Lismore, North Lismore communities that have been most impacted are the people who have the least amount of wealth in this community. Um, and so these are the poorer areas where land is cheaper and housing was cheaper. Um, We've, we, we already have a bit of a housing crisis. There is very little social housing. There's very, there is no community housing in this region. The absence in, of investment by state and federal governments over the last 20 years means our housing stock for com, um, social housing is, is zero. Uh, the waiting list has been enormous for years. There's been the announcement of some uh, uh, $285 million basically for Um, housing response. The problem is we don't have any houses. There are none. So even by providing 16 weeks worth of rent relief for people, there are no houses to rent out. And of course, there's no regulation of the renting market. So, you know, perhaps the alternative would have been to construct a, a, a sort of tent city or a mobile home city of some sort. More broadly speaking, we don't have the infrastructure um, that is ready to accommodate the more vulnerable uh, and the poorer people in our communities um, that are subject to these extreme weather events. So, yeah, the, the problem is very broad. 
You also had a visit from the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. He uh, arrived in Lismore, uh, which was in many ways the epicenter of the disaster. Can you just briefly talk about what that experience was? What was the reception that the Prime Minister received? Yeah, look, it was it was more than shocking. It was so woeful. It was appalling. Um, and I say that hand on heart. So the Prime Minister was arriving um, The community found out the day before. People mobilised. People wanted to to see him. They wanted to tell their story to him. There were some very angry people. They wanted to shout at him. They wanted to wave signs saying, hey, this is a climate emergency. What are you doing? You're still approving coal mines. What are you doing, you know? Um, So without a doubt, there were. But there were people that just wanted to see him and talk to him. Um, it was very hard to know what his agenda was uh, in so far as his timetable. People thought and expected there would be an opportunity for him to stand in front of the community like other political leaders had. We had the New South Wales Premier walk up and down the main street, which is actually the centre of the apocalypse. There's, it's just carnage and destruction everywhere. The New South Wales Premier walked up and down the street, so did other people, and people could come and meet. He was hugging people. There were people there. that There were people that perhaps shouted at him. Um, Scott Morrison, nobody knew where he was. Um, there was a network saying, have you seen him through social media and other channels? Um, apparently he briefed the media and said there will be um, no media um, access to me, the Prime Minister, except when I say in one closed room in the Lismore Council Chambers. So people found out, they gathered at the Lismore Council Chambers, which was public a public community space. Um, when they arrived, they arrived to, I think it was in the order of about 80 armed police officers, and then... Um, They were told it was 2 o'clock or 2.30 and about an hour later a car drove through, um, a a lined wall of police officers, not obviously not from our community, some local police officers, but many from a long distance away. Um, He drove in, uh, locked the doors and then drove out after the event. And so um, I was there. I was at that space. Um, I witnessed it. I saw women with their babies um, still in their gumboots. They put down their scrubbing brushes and their gurneys um, and they were genuinely there to tell him their story. They wanted him to hear what they were going through. Um, and when one woman standing next to me realised what was happening, she broke down. She actually broke down into tears and, and then shouted and just went, I just can't believe this. I, I hate him. Um, the emotion was incredibly raw. This was literally a woman with her her young child and she just wanted to tell her prime minister. And she actually thought he was coming to listen. Um, and so that's when I think, the, the few hundred people that were there realised, really, really realised that he was not there for, he was not coming for them, that's for sure. This is the the guy who came up with the Where the Bloody Hell Are You advertise, tourism ad campaign. Uh, so he's, at least no one can say he isn't, he doesn't live out his own uh, stupid marketing slogans in real life as a political leader. That is so infuriating. I mean, I'm used to being infuriated by this government, but just listening to you, um, relate that story. Um, this is making my blood pressure rise. You know, th- and this brings us to the next question, which you know is the election, which we now have an opportunity to really 
make as as a nation uh, to you know to to vote on this performance perhaps um this is the only disaster that this government really cares about is an electoral disaster um and um I, I almost feel like if there's one positive thing about this these floods is that the timing of them they've happened just before an election as opposed to the bushfires which happened just after the 2019 election which was excruciating what is the feeling that those affected will take to the poll to the voting booths um, in just a few weeks um look it's always really hard to gauge you know how this translates to the electorate um, and electoral politics in that sense um i absolutely think that there is a a serious connection that people are making people who are otherwise not necessarily engaged in the narrative of climate change um i think there is a a, a resounding awareness that may not have been there before this event that this is a climate change induced event um it doesn't matter how long you've been on the planet um that was that was the first time and it was the very definition of an extreme weather event there's just no two ways about it and everybody here up and down this catchment to the flood all the way down the flood plain um realizes that this is the thing that people have been talking about however they've heard that in their conversations even if it was from Barnaby Joyce laughing at it um i i think that people the penny has really dropped sadly and tragically i walk through what was once my town um it's very hard to get from one side to the other without crying and understanding the the scale of the loss this was a regional city and it's virtually been wiped off the map there may be parts there will be parts that rebuild but this is absolutely the center of the apocalypse it's catastrophic i think that has to translate into the understanding of what is the first thing that you can do right now to address climate inaction and climate change and try to make this less harmful for future generations the first thing we can do is change this government in may 10 years ago we had we were kind of leading the way we had the climate commission which was full of incredible minds and scientists that were talking to us about what are the likely impacts these are the lead authors in our australian in the chapters of the ipcc and they were housed here in our public institutions we were leading the way in terms of adaptation and resilience and what that looked like but in 2013 when tony abbot came to power he he took a swipe at all of it he defunded these organizations and commissions the ones that were charged with the responsibility of making us future more safe um we've had 10 whole years now that we've lost in terms of what we needed to do to take climate action and to address this climate crisis um i i do think that people in this region realize now that there's a job to do and the guys in there are the same ones that have been laughing at that job ignoring it taking lumps of coal into parliament and laughing thinking that was a joke well this is not a joke this is a crisis Well look at as we say at the end of the video um you know Australian government will literally get you all killed if you re-elect us in May you know people say oh this that's funny funny video and I'm like yeah that wasn't a joke um so um uh your your professional field 
uh, of expertise is environmental law. So it would be remiss of me not to ask you to comment on a major development which has which just came out in the past few days, uh, the Sharma court case, a court case that was brought by a group of eight brave children against the federal environment minister to protect young people from the future harm caused by the the, change, the impacts of climate change. Can you talk about this case and what has the latest development been? Yeah, look, it was an incredibly, a, a really clever case that was brought by the eight children and the sister, um, Sister Arthur, I think she was in her 80s. Um, and it was basically a class action um, arguing that the Commonwealth Minister for the Environment, Susan Lay, has a duty of care um, when she's making decisions to approve things like coal mines or if you consider whether a coal mine should go ahead um, or, a, 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 you know, a greenhouse gas emission uh, type of project, when she's making those decisions, she needs to consider the impacts that they will have on children. So the first case was really incredible and it brought evidence from um, public health um, medical experts and others to show how these sort of developments, particularly coal mine developments, um, um, are going to exacerbate climate change. Then the health experts were able to show that the impacts of a changing climate and what that means to the health of future generations. So anybody, uh, um, you know, 18 years and younger at this point in time, that the impacts on them, we're talking about serious injury and death. They were the, 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 that is the evidence of these medical experts looking at all of the science, all of the predictions, which we know is the world consensus of science, these predictions. The medical experts then translate that into what it means in terms of public health outcomes. And they have actually clearly stated in evidence in court that we are talking about catastrophic health impacts to our young people, whether it be through, uh, you know, air pollution, et cetera, increasing temperatures or death from catastrophic events. We are talking about serious injury and death to those young people. So the court naturally found, well, yes, a Commonwealth minister does have a duty of care if she's making decisions that are going to exacerbate or those impacts on young people. Um, and it was an incredible success. Those young people found hope in the decision um, and were mobilised into believing that they had taken some control over their future. They were going to and they wanted to engage in conversations with the minister and ask her to exercise that duty of care in a manner that meant not approving these brand-new coal mines. Um, and then we've just heard. So, so firstly, the real affront that happened straight after that is that the minister, so the current Commonwealth government appealed that decision. They literally briefed their lawyers to go and argue, I don't have a duty of care to prevent harm and death. So Sue, the first part was the judge actually ruled in favour of the children and said, yes, the, the government, well, specifically the minister, has a duty of care towards these children. The government then said, no, we're going to appeal that. Is that yes, that's absolutely right. The joy when that decision came down, 
I mean, the Australian networks of, um, you know, people who care and the Twitter and all of the social media, it was just jubilation. It was like, oh, wow, finally justice has come to the discussion and justice is going to intervene. Remembering we have seen so little climate action politically for so long, it was almost like, wow, this is the end of that absurdity. Now we can have the real discussion about how we, if we want to put it in the terms of the litigation, how we can protect our children from harm and death from climate change, Um, you know. And then, yeah, the government chose to appeal that responsibility. I mean, it's unfathomable in the first place to consider that you would object to having that duty when you are the responsible minister and the responsible government in a country. How do we explain that to our children? Well, I explained it to my adult children and they're pretty furious and they certainly won't be voting for this government, I know. And so then she appealed and... Yeah, the the full bench of the federal court said, oh, yeah, no, I think the judge probably went a bit too far. We're not, we can't find duties of care on ministers. They have other responsibilities and we don't want, we don't want this coming into this justice narrative right now. It won't work for all these other reasons. So we're going to overrule that and, and there you go. And, you know, Susan Lay, the current Commonwealth Environment Minister, knew that she would find, um, have a good basis to appeal that judgment. And, And the way we could have avoided that is if she and her legal team did just sit back and say, well, that is the new law, that is the new law, and we're going to follow it. And let's, in fact, let's, in fact, make our written parliamentary made law up to date with how that single judge suggested the law. That's what a proper responsible government would do. And that's not this government. Now it's your turn to be optimistic, Sue. That's uh, I, w- I would love if that uh, had been the response from uh, Susan Lay. Um, but just very briefly, um, is this the end of the road? I mean, I, I saw the scenes of, of, of the kids getting the news outside the court case. Some of them were in tears. It was heartbreaking. Um, but good on them for being such little, uh, you know, warriors from, you know, from the get-go. I mean, in so many ways, children don't have a choice, which is really heartbreaking in itself. Um, but is that the end of the road for this case, or is there another um, stage of appeal for them? Yeah, look, there is one more stage of appeal, and that's to the Australian High Court. Um you know, whether or not those young people and the current legal team choose to do that. Um that's something we'll see. They've got, a, 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 I think, another week or so to consider whether they'll file that appeal. Um, I'm not going to say either way whether they will or won't. The difficulty of appealing um, is, you know, the full bench of the federal court did produce a very comprehensive judgment that follows the traditional um, path of the law. So um, any appeal will be difficult, and I'm not suggesting that it won't be um, taken up. We'll we'll see how that plays out in the coming days. I mean, what this what this suggests is that you know we have electoral options, we have legal options, and we're trying to approach this um, this problem, uh, this human induced problem of climate change, from so many different directions. We don't know which ones are going to work. So people are just trying everything, and so most of them aren't going to work. But it's this combination of everything, sort of multi multi vectorial uh, approach from different angles that um, is really it's now unmistakable. We're seeing it everywhere. Uh, but just to bring us back to that that political aspect of that of that fight, uh, I just wanted to ask you one last question, Sue and. 
you know, thank you so much again for joining us and taking the time out of, uh, out, out of your day. I know, you know, you've been through a lot. So thank you very much for taking the time to share this experience with us. Um, but I wanted to ask you um, to conclude, to wrap up um, about your turn to politics. You've been a successful and highly respected environmental lawyer. You've taken on mining giants and governments and won. And now you've decided to move away from that and into politics. You've just been selected to fill a seat in the New South Wales State Parliament. Congratulations. Can you talk about your transition from the law to politics and what do you see your role as being in the future? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, look, I've, I've, I've probably always been, I, I'm a progressive political person in the sense. So when I um, started in law, it was with the mission to protect the environment through law. I'm an environmental lawyer. That's what I do. Um, and, and I did that, and, and I did that um, earnestly, hand on heart, and worked with our legal system and the politically made laws um, to how I thought they were meant to work to protect the environment, to be sensible, to look at the science and the evidence about what is important, to keep people safe and to look after things that can't speak for themselves, native wildlife, our, our pristine environments, our water quality, our well-being. Um, and I commenced this work, as I say, in earnest. And, yes, won cases. Um, I won cases against with communities. Obviously, I don't. You don't do this stuff on your own. That's for sure. Um, we won cases um, in the courts. We beat Rio Tinto in the court from building a massive new coal mine, um, and then I it was exposed to really a, an unfathomable happening. So we won case one particular case with Rio Tinto, and then. And it was all over the front of the papers and, and, and oh, gosh, how can um, a community win against a mining company in a court? What's happened here? Sovereign risk. We can't have this. This is just not what happens. Two days later, the CEO of um, Rio Tinto had flown from London, was sitting in the New South Wales Premier's office talking about how they had to do something to override this court decision. You couldn't do this. And sure enough, um, Politicians then are standing in Parliament rewriting the rules that we've won by. So this exposed me to something I, you know, was slightly aware of but didn't realise how much this is happening in our system. State capture of these fossil fuel corporations is rife. It's, it's not even really happening behind closed doors. It was then I realised, hang on, our laws are not our laws. Our laws have been perverted and our laws are manipulated. And how can I win at the other end in courts when our lawmakers, i.e. our parliaments, and that institution of democracy is so overcaptured and influenced by vested interest? And that's when I started really looking into how the system is working and where it's broken. And I realised I can stand in these courts and I can win. And, and really where I want to be is I want to be at the front end. I want to be where laws are made. And so we can try and make better laws. Because as you said, how do we address climate change? And we're all trying it from this multi-pronged approach, which we need to do, no doubt. But the one thing that is getting in everyone's way right now 
is our parliamentary made laws that are prohibiting, they're preventing, they're putting up barriers, and it's just not doing the work we need to do, having good laws and good policy that support communities, business, and everyone that is trying to make this future safer for everybody and address climate change. And if we're all in it together and we're supported by that fundamental institution of democracy, we, we could do it looking at the eyes of our own children and grandchildren and say, we're doing it, we're doing it together. And I want to be a part of that. So I'm going to get into the New South Wales Upper House at some point in the coming months. Um, and, you know, in some ways, it, yeah, this event that has just unfolded, I found out on a Wednesday night that I was going into Parliament. This happened on um, the early hours of Monday morning. This event will be in all of my advocacy forevermore, whether it's um, um, direct or indirect, whether it's visible or invisible. This is now in, in me forever. Having lived and seen what's happened, um, this will go into the New South Wales Parliament every day I'm in there. It's such a great thing that you're getting you're getting into that into that space, and uh, we want to wish you all the best with your uh, this next chapter of your work, um, and to thank you for all the work that you've done uh, at the EDO uh, as an environmental lawyer, um, and um, and also that you're doing on the ground in your community in Lismore. So all the best, and thank you so much for all the work you do do and calling out the shit fuckery everywhere you do it. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Juice Media Podcast. Before we part ways, a reminder that we've released our new Department for Thoughts and Prayers merch, and all the profits from the sales will go towards supporting communities affected by the floods in New South Wales and Queensland. You can grab some swag from our store at shop.thejuicemedia.com. Of course, if you'd prefer to donate directly, you can do that too, and we've suggested three fundraisers, which we'll include links to in the show notes or in the video description if you're watching this podcast on YouTube. which is a good time to remind you that this podcast is available on your favorite podcast app, but that we also publish a video version on our YouTube channel. Thanks to Ellen for helping to produce and edit the Juice Media podcast. And as always, thank you to our patrons who make the podcast and the Honest Government ads possible, especially these legends who support us via our highest patron tier of $100 a month. Thank you. If you value our work, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Juice Media. You've been listening to the Juice Media podcast with me, Giordano. I'll catch you very soon for our next Honest Government ad. Until then, take care.